Hi, I'm Ed Charlton. Uh, yes, 5G will change the world. It's just going to take a little bit longer than we'd hoped. This is Sean Kinney, and welcome to Will 5G Change the World, the podcast where we engage with a wide variety of industry experts to answer that important question. But before we get into the 5G discussion, we like to take a moment to try to get to know our guests a little bit better by posing three questions from the Proust questionnaire. Ed, are you ready for those? Yes, sir. Question number one, what is your favorite occupation? I like to build things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm largely in sales now, but my favorite thing is to build things. And question number two, what is the trait you most deplore in others? Uh, narcissism. Uh, I, I, uh, I played rugby in college and you know, I sort of learned that you have to be somewhat selfless uh, to get ahead as a group and, and people that are just in it for themselves, I don't appreciate very much. You're going to hate the next 25 minutes then. Podcast very much an exercise in vanity. <laughs> Question number three, Ed. What do you value most in your friends? Uh, loyalty. So, Ed, not to timestamp our recording, but as we're talking, the FCC is hosting an Open RAN showcase event. Your colleague, uh, Mike Murphy, a former guest on the show, great episode. I'd encourage everyone to check that out. But uh, he provided some some data saying that incumbent vendors, which Nokia would, would fall into, have contributed something around 56% of the work that is fed into the ORAN Alliance's output. So I'm hoping you can give me a little context around why a firm that is most likely to be disrupted as Open RAN gains market traction are also shouldering the bulk of the technical work that is allowing Open RAN to pop up in different markets and different deployment scenarios around the world. What's the what's the long game there? Well, um, obviously, Open RAN is an important uh, uh, direction that our customers want to take us, and uh, it allows us to compete uh, in areas where we're not the incumbent vendor now, just as it allows others to come into ours, and so. If you have confidence in all the components of your of your portfolio, um, you shouldn't really be afraid of Open RAN because uh, you have the opportunity to go take from others just as they have to take from you. So, in addition to Open RAN architectures having an impact on the way operators are deploying five G networks today and planning to deploy five G networks in the future. Uh, there's also a lot of action right now around Spectrum, uh, notably here in the U.S., the C-band auction wrapped up uh, with uh, something like $80 billion in proceeds, and that mid-band, obviously, a key piece of balancing coverage and capacity for operators as they build out and start to derive revenue from 5G. So I'm curious if you can just give us some perspective on how you see operator Spectrum strategies evolving as they look to deploy this mix of low, mid, and high band spectrum for 5G. Yeah, well, so I think, you know, it's obviously very well known by everyone, um, the, the, the benefits of low band in terms of reach, the benefits of high band in terms of, you know, massive throughput. But uh, it really has emerged that mid band is the sweet spot. Um, and we've seen here in the US that uh, T-Mobile in particular has really taken advantage of that and, and really improved their service because of their extensive use already of, of mid-band spectrum. Um, we saw AT&T and Verizon go after it very aggressively uh, to compete. And I think for uh, a few years to come, uh, mid-band is really going to dominate the investment in the U.S. 
I also wanted to talk with you a little bit about private networks. Um, you know, obviously, if you look at a lot of the 5G research out there, it's tied to digital transformation of industries and enterprises, that sort of industry 4.0 umbrella. Uh, Nokia really in pole position here from my perspective in terms of deploying these private customized networks in service of specific verticals. So maybe you can give us just a general kind of overview of what Nokia is, is seeing and doing as it relates to private networks. And I'm also curious if you could take me through the market variability you see. Uh, the context of that is most of the private network projects I'm aware of that Nokia has been involved in are in Europe. So I'm just kind of curious, is the U.S. behind? Is it catching up or is that just uh, an incorrect perception on my part? Well, I'll start at the end first. I, I think we're seeing plenty of private networks here in the U.S. as well. Um, it's certainly true that, that uh, we're seeing a bunch in Europe, but um, there are a lot here. And um, some, you know, you're right, we have led in this position, others are trying to, to catch up, but we've had a pretty good market position for the last uh, couple of years. Um, you know, private networks have a lot of different uses. Um, you know, one of the things that they do best, perhaps, is enable edge computing, because you can put the, uh, you can put the gear close to the compute. And so those that are latency sensitive, those that really want to have control, out there, it really allows them to do all sorts of things uh, in, in a way that they can be assured of the outcome. So, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of it. And, and but by the way, it's not just uh, us, you know, going directly to enterprises. There's sort of all sorts of hybrid models too. Um, all three of the the uh, big operators in the U.S. are partners of ours in building out private networks, and so. It's not a. It's not really just a black and white issue, public versus private. There's plenty of hybrid situations as well. If I could follow up on that, when we think about private networks for uh, manufacturing or a logistics facility or a hospital, uh, these are all meant to really be tuned to deliver specific types of business outcomes that are meaningful to that particular industry. I'm curious from the Nokia perspective, how do you balance the need for your own company to produce products in a scalable, replicable fashion with the need for these private networks to be highly customized? What's, what's the balance there? Well, I think in terms of the, the actual radio deployments and things like that, they're, they're not really that much different. Uh, you know, it, it's really the services that, gets, that get laid on top, the particular applications that get uh, employed generally by the end customer. So I, I don't really think of it as changing our portfolio all that much. It, it, it is different with the way it's configured in the field and the way it's set up, just like it is from operator to operator in the U.S. So I, I think it's, um, you know, it, it's not really pressing us uh, a lot in that regard. It does take a lot, uh, especially when we're involved in the implementation. It takes, you know, field engineering resources to make sure that we've got to tune for the exact application, but uh, in terms of the gear itself, it's not really that much different. I'm also curious uh, to understand a little bit better organizationally how you gain the expertise necessary to effectively sell into these verticals. Uh, and I, I guess to put that another way, are you out there hiring people that know a lot about mining or know a lot about how a port operates so that you can address these markets? Well, you know, it's a really great question, and I think it's one that that um, all of us uh, struggle with as well. Because although we can think of you know many, many, many industries uh, where where private wireless is is relevant and beneficial, 
you're right that we don't have the reach. Uh, it, it, uh, our sales force doesn't have the reach directly to go into all those. So we tend to partner with people a lot. I mentioned earlier that we're partnered with the other operators. We have partnerships with all three of the big guys in the U.S. Um, and, and frankly, beyond that, we have also have partners with a large number of other bars, some of whom specialize in those particular industries, right? So, so I, I don't think it's sensible for Nokia to try and replicate the sales force that we have uh, going against the CSPs to, you know, to try and address every potential customer out there. But, um, you know, we do that through partnerships and it seems to be working really well. Hi, everyone. This is Sean. I want to thank you for supporting Will 5G Change the World, which is brought to you by our friends at NetScout. NetScout's Visibility Without Borders helps carrier service providers achieve pervasive monitoring in real time with actionable insights from anywhere, any service, any technology, any cloud with any application in any infrastructure at every phase of the 5G lifecycle, pre-launch, launch, and operations. To learn more, visit netscout.com forward slash 5G. I wanted to shift gears a little bit, Ed, and ask you about... Uh expanding access to broadband. This has obviously uh, been a long-standing point of conversation within the FCC and other uh, apparatuses of the federal government. So maybe you can share with us some observations around how COVID really punctuated the need for expanding access and making access a little more equitable and, and really shined a light on the damage that can be caused when students as to just give one example, don't have access to broadband, but are in a situation where they need to uh, engage in remote learning. Yeah, it, it's a, I mean, it's obviously a, a, a big problem and not just, you know, for the industry, but for the country as a whole, right? Uh, you know, um, our competitiveness around the world, you know, is, is really in large, largely driven by connectivity and, and what we can do with the productivity tools that we have. And you're right, it's uneven. Um, I think it's the problem is is difficult to solve because, of course, there are many advocates for one particular technology or another. Some people want to fiber the entire country. Some people to say you can do it all with wireless. Um, and the truth is, it takes a lot of different technologies depending on customer density, speed requirements, that sort of thing. But there are a lot of gaps out there, and you know, ironically, you know. We, Certainly, it's true that uh, that economically disadvantaged areas suffer probably the worst, but there's plenty of other places that aren't really economically disadvantaged that still don't have good access to uh, to connectivity. So, we're we're big supporters of uh, the infrastructure bills that are in Congress. We think that it's it's super important that we rise above this. It, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that. If we just leave it to uh, the profitability of, of the individual operators to make the deployments, there's going to be some gaps out there because there's going to be some places where it just uh, doesn't make sense for them to spend the money. But if they have if they have it available to them and we can together build out ubiquitous coverage, and again, it doesn't always have to be with the same technology, but to get ubiquitous coverage, uh, not only does, does everyone win individually, but collectively we win because applications and, and uh, tools can be made universally available to all Americans. And so the uptick is, is much stronger. So it's, it's a real win-win and it's really someplace that we're super supportive of the federal government investing. 
Yeah, that makes me uh, recall a, a Telecom Italia press release I was reading a few days ago, and it was about they had achieved 99% coverage in a particular region of Italy, and it only took uh, fiber, copper, satellite, uh, fixed wireless, cellular. And I thought, oh, so it's very straightforward. But you, know, you, you mentioned uh, the work that Nokia does in terms of advocating through the uh, appropriate lobbying channels to make sure that there is funding in place at a federal level for these ongoing uh, expansion projects in the U.S., but maybe you can just talk to me a little bit more high level about what the telecom industry as a whole needs to do collaboratively to help drive broadband coverage uh, everywhere it's needed in, in North America. Well, I mean, it, it is, it is, you know, in large part investment. I mean, I, I mean, I think, I mean, it, it is as simple as that. I mean, we're seeing a, you know, real footprint expansion in, in the big operators, particularly T-Mobile, where, where the, their footprint uh, has been, expansion has been really breathtaking over the last couple of years. But we're also now starting to see, you know, more fiber trenched uh, in, you know, across the country. Uh, you know, we're, there's, a, there's a big demand for that. We see that in our fixed network business as well as our, our, uh, our transport business, um, that sort of the backhaul infrastructure is being put in place as well. I, I think Often the folks that run our our uh, our wired business, if I could refer to that, say that that uh, you know wired is what enables wireless, and and I think that's that's largely true. And you know, particularly when people start to think about deploying millimeter wave solutions and things like that that have a very limited serving radius, uh, getting fiber infrastructure deep into the network helps enable that as well. So. You know, we need to spend money, uh, and is is the short story. And but the the, the payback is enormous. Uh, not only you know, for you know, you know, obviously we're we're vendors. We'd like to sell more stuff, but I think that's not really the end game here. The end game is to is to get people as much connectivity as they can, and I think the investment's well worth it. Number of years ago, I had the opportunity to interview uh, Bob Metcalf, uh, co-inventor of, of Ethernet, and that was sort of his mantra: "You can't have wireless without wires." So, at the top of the show, Ed, you told us that uh, you do think five G will change the world, but it's taking a little longer uh, than you thought. So, with the benefit of, of hindsight, what is responsible for that delay in time to value that five G uh, can can deliver? Well, you know, we've obviously had a somewhat of a disruptive year uh, or two, uh, a little, which I think has slowed us down a little bit. But you know, getting uh, getting deployments out there more broadly is is super important. I mean, there are certain applications that uh, you can employ five G in a campus environment or something like that, where you can ensure the coverage is good, and so you can you can you can move now. Um, but other applications require broader coverage, and uh, those things take a while to take off unless you you know you build the footprint. So I think um, you know I think we've seen a little bit of a delay in getting uh, enough 5G enabled devices, IoT like devices uh, employed out there, um, and we are just now seeing uh, the breadth of the coverage building up to a point where it can be usable everywhere. So. You know, it, it, it doesn't change the benefits in the end. I mean, the benefits of quality of service, the benefits of low latency, massive throughput. I mean, those things enable all sorts of things, um, but it has been a little slower to take off than I think all of us uh, anticipated. One of the interesting things, you know, I was talking to uh, 
the the uh, team that runs our enterprise sales group and what they said was you know because we have deployed obviously some private solutions um and one of the interesting things is these businesses tend to build the applications or build the network to support one or two applications but as soon as they get it out there they find all sorts of other things they do with it as well and it's just sort of evidence that once the infrastructure is in place um, you really start to find more and more ways to take advantage of it. So uh, it gives us optimism that when that happens in sort of a, you know, smaller contained environment that uh, as we build out nationwide, we'll see a much more uh, aggressive uptake. So when we get back to our core question here, will 5G change the world? Uh, you know, it's not binary, yes or no, but I... I tend to think of it as like Jim Collins's flywheel effect. Like we'll see so much small incremental change that'll eventually get to a point that it'll be meaningful and, and global. But rather than just answer yes, no, or try to put a, a point in time on it, what kind of indicators would you look for that would suggest to you that something very important is happening? Uh, I, I guess in the past, things have come up around productivity and GDP lift that you can tie directly to 5G, but how do you contextualize uh, that question? Well, uh, you know, in the end, uh, connected devices are probably a, 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 as good an indicator as, as we have, right? Uh, you know, there's, we don't know yet what we don't know, but the one thing that that uh, certainly indicates more utilization of the technology and how many devices you're connecting to it. Uh, and, you know, as much as anything else, you know, more than, you know, base stations built or radios hung, I think the number of devices connected to the network are probably the best indication of our success. Well, Ed, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me to share your perspective and to uh, answer that question. Will 5G change the world? Thanks, Sean. Great talking with you. Will 5G Change the World is an Arden Media production. For advertising inquiries, contact Danny Miller at dmiller at ardenmedia.com. The show today was produced and edited by me, Sean Kenny. Thanks for listening.